Welcome to the Achieve Results Nutrition and Wellness Podcast, the ultimate guide to feeling and looking your best. Join me, your host, as we embark on an exciting journey to discover the power of nutrition, exercise, sleep, recovery, and mental performance. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and uplifted as we uncover the secrets to unlocking your full potential and living your best life. Whether you're a fitness enthusiast, a wellness warrior, or just looking to improve your overall well-being, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to elevate our performance together. Welcome to the Achieve Results Nutrition and Wellness Podcast. And today with me, I have one of my favorite all-time dietitians, probably definitely the smartest dietitian I know for sure. And that is Mr. Doug Cook. So Doug, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you being on. Pleasure to be here. I'm happy to help out and spread the word about good health. Absolutely. And, and specifically longevity and a little bit of anti-aging today, correct? Yeah, it's the hot topic for sure. Yeah, happy to just to, to discuss. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you on. Doug, just for anyone who, who has not seen your work, can you give us just a quick a little bit of information about yourself, a little bit of your background and how you ended up where you're at today? Yeah, I'm a dietitian, have been for over 23 years, dabbled in a little bit of everything, hospital work, private practice, writing, consulting. And about 10 years ago, I landed at a hospital in Canada, Mental Health and Psychiatric Hospital, CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, where I really learned a lot about nutrition and brain health. And that kind of now has segued and I've gone on the wave of this whole anti-aging longevity movement. And Part of it, I think, is just because I'm older and I think my nutrition focus and health focus has changed. It's an exciting time, but more importantly, it's pretty exciting that we really can take the bull by the horns and shape our aging to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you're right on track with that. And it is a hot topic nowadays, right? The whole anti-aging thing. So what does anti-aging and longevity mean like to you and from just a general wellness perspective or through the scope that, that you're trying to look at it? Yeah. So for me, it really is about optimizing health and kind of mitigating or slowing down the trajectories. There's a lot of sensationalism on online. So people get all prickly about these terms like longevity and anti-aging, like no one's pretending you're not going to age, right? But everything we do in health and fitness is about living well for as long as possible. So Wellness is about fostering healthy habits to live, which is about health, what health spans all about. But there's no denying that if you live well and you're healthier, your risk of dying prematurely is reduced. So in that sense, it has a longevity aspect. So it really is just about optimizing quality of life, wellness, and as I said, health span, which really can be seen as compressing the amount of time in your life where you're dealing with comorbid conditions. So rather than the the current 10 to 15 years where you have debilitating conditions and you're taking 15, not 15, 10 sometimes medications, if we can reduce that from 10 or 15 years down to five, it's just better all around. It's better for the person. It's better for the healthcare system. It's just, it's a good goal in my mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that term, right? Yeah. The hellscape. Because I think that's the big thing, right? In terms of everybody wants their longevity and their anti-aging. And I guess those two things, obviously, they have this underlying tone to them, but there's a huge difference between living a long time 
and being able to live <laughs> your life the way you want to live it for a long time. And I think that's the thing now is where, as opposed to, like you said, 10 to 15 years of just essentially kind of fizzling out and being on a lot of medications and being sick and inactive and things, people are trying to live to the best of their capabilities with the time that they are here, correct? A hundred percent. That's exactly it. It's about living, thriving, all that type of stuff, as opposed to being buying into this idea that frailty and decrepitude is an inevitability when it can be greatly, you can really change the course, if you will, or the trajectory, slow it down, basically. Totally. Okay, cool. And I think a good place to start when it comes to that, right? Slowing things down, improving the quality of life at a later stage and a later age in life got to be has to do with mitochondria right um with that kind of being the cell's powerhouse and i think that's one thing where anti-aging and longevity and stuff is focuses on mitochondrial health can you just go through that through just a little bit of quick example of what is the mitochondria what it's for and how is it so important in this anti-aging or longevity process yeah, it really is. Aging from a cellular health point of view starts at 35. So if you're 35 or older, <laughs> you're old age. So basically, once we've passed our prime, everything slows down. So the mitochondria could be seen as a, I don't know, what's like a power cell, if you will, it creates energy. This is going back to undergrad biochemistry, yeah. which we all suffered through, but now I can't get enough of it. It's basically about taking food and then digesting that food to produce energy to create an energy molecule called ATP. So we always say we, we often say we get energy from food. That's incorrect. I think a good analogy might be like a steam engine. So you take wood, which is food, we burn it to get heat, and then we use it to produce steam. So those three processes, just to remind people who's taken this stuff, there's <laughs> glycolysis, Krebs cycle, and the electron transport chain. And the end part, the electron transport chain, is where it happens in the mitochondria. So it creates and generates electrons, and it really is like the electrons in your battery. And so when you have good power production and power output, then the cell, it doesn't matter if it's a heart cell, kidney cell, pancreas cell, or brain cell, can work optimally and then do everything that, that cell's meant to do. So produce insulin, contract muscles, think, regulate emotions. So it really is about optimizing the mitochondria. And there's a lot of things that you and I do with clients and promote that can really make those things work better and actually increase the number that we have in our cells as well, because they drop off as we age. Yeah, absolutely. And so what type of things are those? First and foremost, the single best one should be no surprise to your audience, but it would be exercise. So when you think of high energy consuming cells, like muscle cells and the heart cells, each of these cells can have up to, depending on the organ, like the heart, up to 1500 mitochondria per cell. And then you've got thousands and thousands of cells making up the heart. So the number one thing would be exercise. And then the next things would be about not straining the mitochondria or giving it things that might be toxic to use an overused word. It's really just about in impeding its ability to make energy. But what drives the mitochondrial function is our vitamins and minerals. And then there's some nuanced compounds that they make on its own that we can support through some targeted supplementation. 
Awesome. Yeah. And I'm, ex- I'm excited to get into that supplementation and just the targeted approach with you a little bit as well. But yeah. And do you know, in terms of your research with exercise and its effect on mitochondrial health, and like you said, multiplying that the amount of mitochondria you have within the cell, right? Or increasing mm. the amount. Do you know if there's any one best approach in terms of is high intensity activity going to be more effective than lower steady state or weight training as opposed to cardio or anything like that? It's a good question. I don't know the answer for that, but I do know when you look at something like HIT, right? High intensity interval training. I'm old enough to remember we called them wind sprints. You'd sprint one <laughs> length of the track and then you'd walk back. Yeah. We know that really has a profound effect on metabolic health and those the residual, like the positive impact can last up to 36 hours. Um, but I think any activity would really do the trick. I think for the average person, just moving would be good. And that part of that mitochondrial efficiency is it then stimulates the body to in- produce or upregulate the production of fat and carb burning enzymes, which is really what fitness does, right? It stresses the body and the cell, the body responds by becoming better. And in this case, you become a better carb and fat burner, and then you just make more energy available for the mitochondria to make ATP. It's all about ATP, which is the universal currency, if you will, for cell energy. Yep. Perfect. So to really dumb this down, <laughs> I wasn't like, uh, down. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, I, I got to really dumb things down for myself sometimes, but it like literally, and almost if you don't use it, you lose it type of issue in terms of obviously the more sedentary we are, the less we're going to ask this mitochondria to do its work, produce the energy it needs to produce. And therefore the less output we're going to get and potentially inhibit the efficiency of it, as opposed to when we're being physically active, whether it's weight training, whether it's cardiovascular or just general activity or otherwise, then obviously we're putting those things to use. And the more they're being used, the more efficient they can stay. Am I on online with that? Yeah, these things are hugely resource hogs. Like it's, it takes a lot of energy and resources for your body to maintain these enzymes, right? Like it's a lot of work to enzymes are protein. So like the DNA has to get stimulated to process that, that stimuli from exercise and it has to go out and make these things and then maintain them. And if you're not using it, it's like, why would I waste my resources? That's exactly it. If you don't use it, you lose it good thing is it's it can be regained and it can be stimulated pretty much at any age you're probably better knowledgeable on that but like you can have frail 80 year olds getting into weight training and get huge benefits that's so great about the body it's so adaptable absolutely yeah the resiliency of the body is one thing that just it really is amazing right it's like you said you can be on the couch for 50 years and it doesn't mean you're doomed it's and even mitochondria aside and just health in general, right? We really can treat our body like absolute trash for a long period of time. And then getting back into that healthy lifestyle, it's amazing how fast it will adapt, right? Mm. It's almost, it. the interesting thing to me is it's almost looking to do it. If you want to look at, I think the speed with which you can improve your body composition and your physical health, right? Like you can literally be inactive for the first 50 years of your life. And then all of a sudden decide that you're going to make a change and it's in within that first year of getting more active, you're, you're, when your training age is at like a zero, say, right? It would mm-hmm. just be like you're a newborn in within your training age. 
that's when you're going to see the biggest gains. That's when you're going to see the biggest jumps in your fitness. That's when you're going to see the biggest jumps in your health. That's when you'll can, you'll produce the most amount of muscle mass and things like that is within that first year. So I always think it's like interesting that in that way where it's like, it it's very clear what the body wants. Like it will literally, it will latch onto that and it will grow and it will improve and it will become more efficient. And, and it, that type of thing just amazes me, right? With how quickly the body can respond to, and it doesn't even have to be a massive input, right? You don't have to do a ton. You can put in 30 minutes a day and it can make a seriously massive impact on your body and on your health. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, at that level of the cell, any kind of demand, is it going to be a huge perceived kind of stress, if you will, or demand, and then it gets busy doing this response, which is what fitness is. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So that's not a bad news story, right? That's a good news story for people to understand. Totally. And a lot of people too, right? They're like, well, I was fit back in the day and I let it go. It's too late for me now. And this is a prime example of, man, it's never too late, right? Like it's never too late to start making smarter choices, healthier choices, affecting your body in this positive way, because I think that's one people lose sight of. And obviously I deal with a lot of fitness focused people and fat loss is usually the main goal and improvements on body composition. But I think this is the stuff that we forget. Like this is the important thing. You can still have five, 10, 15 pounds to lose and you can really make your body a lot more metabolically healthy just by doing these things. Yeah, like we can't get into it just because it's a huge topic, but anyone can kind of Google <clears throat> the nine hallmarks of aging. So when you look at gene stability and you look at how well the body responds to nutrient sensing, which just means, okay, you're giving it carbs, you're giving it fat. How am I going to respond to that? When the cells reproduce, there's it affects these things called telomeres, which is on the end of your chromosome. So the new model of aging is really about supporting all of that and you as much as I love diet, I think that two things is would be more important would be exercise and sleep. Diet's important, as you say, but it can manifest as weight loss. It can manifest as fitness, depending on your patient population or client population work with that. But yeah, it's the health span and the health response is independent to some degree with that composition, as you say. Totally. Yeah, no, that's cool. And that's one of those things where I will harp on people, right? It's yeah, of course, we all want the body composition change. We all want to look like the or most of us want to look like the person on the magazine that you saw when you were checking out at the grocery store this afternoon or whatever, right? But that's such like in terms of the gravity of what you could be doing for yourself, that is a, just a tiny minuscule piece of it, right? It's you, I always say to people, you'd be saving your own life and you don't even know it. And I think that's the stuff that it gets lost over, right? Where really it shouldn't. I think it should be the the main driving force is, like, yeah, I'm going to, like you said, that the health span is just the perfect term for it. Like I'm trying to expand that health span as long as I can expand it. And there's people that live healthy lives and they may not be cover models on a magazine, but they live long, healthy, happy. They're there for their family. They're there for their friends. They're physically active. They're strong. They're resilient. They're avoiding that frailty. And it's because they are doing things like staying active and sleeping well and living a wellness focused lifestyle, right? For sure. Cool. Okay, so we're through the mitochondria a little bit. Now, I guess the question is, we will bring it back to food a little bit. I do like to make sure we're talking about food quite a bit here on this podcast. What are the best foods for people to focus on for their longevity? And how can people manage their system for the best anti-aging results through a food-based approach? Uh, it's all the stuff we've heard before. So maybe it needs to be repackaged in a sexier carton or a new bow. But it really is this concept of an anti-inflammatory diet, nutrient-dense diet as much as possible, 
plants and animals for me. I'm an out and proud omnivore. When we think about energy zapping or depleting compounds, everyone hates to hear this, but alcohol is one of the worst things and stress and poor sleep. But when it comes to food, it's just all the basic consistent intake of nutrient dense foods that give you all the vitamins and minerals. Yeah, perfect. And are there specific vitamins or minerals that you're trying to focus on more than others in this specific case? Yeah, when I think of longevity and these anti-aging type things, it all goes back to the mitochondria. So there's one cofactor and a cofactor is just like a helper. If you think of somebody like maybe a floater in a a workplace or something goes around and helps the other people do their job. Little crosswalk crosswalk guard. Yeah. Or just if I think of of a floater at the hospitals, I'm booked, I'm swamped. Can somebody help with my caseload? There's something called NAD. So it's a big, fancy, long name, but the acronym is NAD. And it is responsible for really driving energy levels throughout life and regulating other processes that relates back to those hallmarks of aging. But it starts to decrease, I think it's 50% every 20 years starting around the age of 2025. So it is one of the hottest researched molecules right now. And so there are some key nutrients that, and activities that support that. So one of the, going back to exercise, one of the things that exercise does is when NAD is used to do its work, it's converted into another compound and it needs to get recycled back to NAD. There's a big, long word of an enzyme that does that. So those, that enzyme decreases in production as we age. Again, that's 35 or older. But one of the greatest stimulants of that production of that enzyme for the production of that enzyme is exercise. And then there are some key nutrients specifically that support it. And it's, I don't know if you've heard of NAD boosters, as some people have seen that online, but it's vitamin B3 and its derivatives is one of the most important things to support NAD production. And there's a couple of compounds going, I hope I'm not making it too complicated. One of the ways NAD drops with age is there's increasing inflammation. And there's one particular nasty player called CD38, and it consumes NAD at an alarming rate. So when you couple that with inactivity, you know, NAD levels in older people are really low. So what I'm trying to say is get lots of good exercise. You can use any number of vitamin B3 or B3 derivatives. And if you want to squash some of this inflammation as it relates to NAD, quercetin is probably the best, one of the best products. There's another product called Apigenin, but not a lot of companies make it. Um, But quercetin is readily available and super safe. It's just a bioflavonoid. It's it's found in a whole bunch of different foods. That's a short answer. Okay, perfect. And do they not have NAD supplements? They are, but it's a really, the experts, this is beyond my scope, but the experts say it's just so big, it's not absorbed. You can raise blood levels pretty easily, but it doesn't get into the cell. So what you want to do is increase all of your cells levels of NAD so they can be more efficient. Uh, and it's just a simple, you could, you don't have to buy the fancy NMN or NR if you've heard of those compounds. You can buy niacinamide, which is a non-flushing form of B3. You could take nicotinic acid, but it's got a bit of a flushing that people, some people don't like, but yeah, the precursors would be the way to go. And then to stop the draining of whatever NED is produced by something like quercetin or apigenin. 
Perfect. Okay. And sorry, what was the NAD draining compound that you had spoken about? Yeah. So as we get older, our cells die, they become senescent, and then they pump out these pro-inflammatory yep. compounds. So as we get older, we have some increased background inflammation. And the main culprit is a protein called CD38. Is there any way to test for that? No, you just know you have it. It's okay. there. <laughs> if you're over 35, it's creeping up and your NAD is heading into the boots. And another super amazing, and there's a lot of good research on this in the elderly, but it would be good at any age, is increasing something called glutathione. Yes. Um, and that's one of these kind of master antioxidants and detoxifiers. So just taking something simple like glycine and NAC or N-acetylcysteine can maintain glutathione levels throughout life. And there's a, when you look at all those kind of exercise metrics that they use on for fitness on older adults like walking time get up and go time muscle strength all that kind of stuff it clinically significantly improves just by boosting glutathione through glycine and NAC yeah. so that coupled with a little bit of extra b3 and maybe some quercetin is one of the best kind of anti-aging hacks that's being talked about a lot amazing and then in terms of glutathione too I recently saw this. I always focus on cruciferous veggies for that because I think they've got some pretty good, pretty good health benefits in terms of increasing glutathione production. But what I also heard recently was whey protein due to the amino structure of it. It's new to me. I had never heard of it, but I recently had heard somebody talking about that whey protein is a really good way to bump up glutathione production. I don't know if you ever heard anything like that about it. So yeah, so glutathione is made up of glycine, glutamine, and cysteine. Yep. And then the rate limiting amino acid, the one that if it's in short supply, tends to impact the production of glutathione the most is cysteine. Okay. One of the best sources is whey protein. And so the only reason I know about that from 20 years ago is I used to do some work for pharmaceutical companies in the early days of HIV before the protease inhibitors. And so that inflammatory state just consumed glutathione. So one of the strategies, and there was good research back then, is just using whey protein not just for muscle synthesis, but restoring glutathione levels. But yeah, if you're getting cysteine and whey, and if you think of all the stinky vegetables, because the short form for glutathione is GSH, and the S stands for sulfur. Yeah. And so all the stinky stuff, broccoli, cabbage, <laughs> Brussels sprouts, onions, garlic, shallots, this is a great way to bring in sulfur as a building compound of that molecule. Absolutely. Perfect. No, I love that. That's great. And then you did bring up inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. So what what is the role of inflammation? And I guess my question is, we're talking about things being a little bit buzzy, like buzzwords. Mm -hmm. I feel like inflammation gets thrown into the mix of buzzwords, especially in the health and fitness. It's like that scare tactic, right? Oh, if you're if there's anything wrong, like you are inflamed. Do you think that it plagues people the way that we are meant to believe that it does? So people should understand that inflammation is neither good nor bad in the sense that just because someone has inflammation doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. So there's acute inflammation, you scratch your skin, it gets inflamed, it signals the healing process. It's when the background inflammation is there and doesn't get shut off. So it's like a, a yin and yang, it's not linear. So we just know that with chronic inactivity, alcohol, ultra processed foods will drive inflammation a bit. Yep. And then when people become more, it really pretty much all of our health issues boils down to metabolic 
health. And so when we become more metabolically poor and have that poor health, it drives inflammation. So it contributes to chronic disease like hypertension, diabetes, macular degeneration, depression, cognitive decline, and it also produces it. So it's usually there to some degree in the background. You can do a CRP test or an ESR test, and it's going to be normal, but we just know from a lot of this research, even like around NAD, CD38, that it's there, it's brewing, and it, it just gets worse and worse, even though you can feel perfectly normal. It's just brewing in the background. Any global or broad stroke anti-inflammatory approach is going to benefit. And then if you wanted to target it, like with NAD, you could bring it down a little more specific. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But it, yeah, it is a buzzword. Antioxidants are a buzzword. There's this concept of inflammaging, which is like inflammation-driven infl- aging, which is why these studies with glutathione and the elderly, they get these benefits because inflammation's dropped. We don't measure interleukins and all this kind of stuff regularly. It's not part of our blood work. Yeah, yeah. And because that's what makes me curious is just how impactful it is on people's day to day, right? Because you hear a lot of people where it's just maybe they think they're not losing weight because they're inflamed or they, they're, I would say they're self diagnosing mm. inflammation. Like I just hear that a lot, right? <clears throat> oh, yeah. yeah. I just, I'm just, I know I'm inflamed. I know that's my issue. And recently I've really started to crack down on that with people and be like, go get a test then. But are, so do you think that the tests are enough? No, I wouldn't bother with the, the tests. And that's, this is where it becomes a bit like you ca- got to know how, not just you, I'm just saying like it, how we interpret this stuff and how we apply it. People can be inflamed and still lose weight. People can be hyperinsulinemic and still lose weight, even though if you give a type a person insulin shots, they often gain weight. So it's a little simplistic to blame it on the gut microbiome and inflammation and that type of thing. But we do know that it's just, it's a contributor to this quote, aging process. And it does contribute to the kind of slowing down. It will interfere at a cellular level. And we can look at this in research and how well your mitochondria are working and burning energy, but it's not sabotaging a person's weight loss efforts. And even if someone were inflamed, exercise will benefit, right? Like inflammation drops when you exercise, you get this momentary increase in free radicals and damage, and it signals inflammation for the purposes of repair to make the next effort easier. That's what fitness is. It's an adaptation, an appropriate adaptation to a stressor to make it easier the next time. Cause your body's, I don't freaking need this. I want it to be easier next time. So I'm going to bring in the reinforcements and that's what exercise does. So yeah, that's the long answer to your question. Inflammation is a part of aging and there's some strategies to lower inflammation through diet and exercise, but that's not playing a role. And I'm nothing that I've can see would impact a person's ability to become fitter yeah. and lose weight if that was their goal. For sure. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I wanted to clear that up because that is, I think, one of those things. It's a bit of a buzzy word in that fitness space for sure. And like you said, I think it's important to understand that, listen, these are things that are, these are processes that are just, like you said, they're necessary. They're always going on within the body, right? So essentially what we have is what we can control. Um, yeah. And the other thing is to cut, cut you off is that I, I do a bit of weight loss, but it doesn't matter if we're talking about blood sugar control or anything like human beings 
behavior change is just it's just the psychology and all that kind of stuff is ingrained in that so when you people talk about ambivalence or they're looking for reasons maybe not to take action part of that motivational process that we all go through can be looking for for lack of a better word excuses right so it can become chatter and noise and i think it's just about when you get into the motivational interviewing and focusing on what's working and but also reminding people that, okay, even if that's true, exercise is going to benefit it. So <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> give me and, 20. Yeah, exactly. exercise and less wine. Less wine, more omega-3s, more nuts and seeds, less yeah. Twinkies. Yeah, and that's, right. And that's another thing where, again, it, maybe this is just me venting or whatever from being in this world for a long time, but I think it's important for people to understand that we can't pick and choose what causes inflammation in our body either, right? Because I think a lot of people will say it was the dairy that I ate this morning for Mm. breakfast, but yet I'm still able to go out and drink my wine and drink my alcohol at night and maybe sneak in that Starbucks coffee or whatever it might be, right? And I think that's where we get trapped a little bit is we want to pick and choose these things that cause issues for us and we want to ignore the other ones (laughs) yeah it's just the nature of the world now like i'm old enough to remember that people didn't have access to all these different ideas and theories and so there's a lot of persistent things out there omega-6s and dairy are pro-inflammatory and that's causing my problems but yeah you're right it's take a bird's eye view and put things in perspective it's not because you had a yogurt or And again, probably the dose is part of the poison as well too, right? So anything, right? It's small amounts of specific things, maybe not so insulting to the health when we get into being a little bit more reliant on things or really overdoing it, going a little heavy on specific foods, then obviously we do run the risk of them causing us more issues than if we hadn't been doing that. So I guess just in terms of this anti-aging, I know you already said it a little bit, but is there... Obviously, we're talking about fruits, we're talking about veggies, berries. Is there any other things that you would recommend just in terms of, let's just say you're trying to, you're trying to live forever. You're trying to have the longest health span you can possibly have. What are those non-negotiable foods? What are those non-negotiable activities that you're throwing into to just a smart health span type plan? Again, stress is a killer. So you have to do what you can to manage your stress. Sleep is a killer. I always tell people as much as I like diet, if you're getting less than six hours, five hours of sleep, that kind of trumps everything with the stress hormones and the circadian rhythm. So sleep hygiene, focusing on that. Any kind of activity where people might be missing the mark is things around omega-3s. I am sure it's the same in the US and Canada, like only 10% of people are meeting the minimum requirements. So those are quite anti-inflammatory, which seems to be part of this kind of Mediterranean pattern. More variety of foods. So there's this new movement to try and get 30 different foods, plant foods a week, not 30 servings, just 30 different Right. So instead of having a big two cups of broccoli, maybe you add two or three other ones in smaller amounts. And glycemic load, it's really about not the total amount of carbs, but I think that's really has to be qualified, meaning just the amount of sugars and added sugars people get. And unfortunately, we're as a society, we're overfed and underexercised. Binges aren't always great. I think in the fitness world, some people will exercise to compensate like some good times, but slow and steady is really the way to go. You know what I mean? I guess that's the main ones. 
No, that sounds great. Yeah, I think, like you said, like balance is going to come down to a lot of it, right? I would like to touch a little more on omega-3. What do you, Are you just recommending a supplement all the time for that? So that's a good question. It really needs to be qualified. If someone's not, there's only three sources, right? right. We can't make it. There's three sources, fish and seafood, eggs, more so in omega-3 enriched eggs or supplements. And so for basic health, we want a, an average of 500 a day. No one's expected to count milligrams of omega-3. So, you know, you have a couple of fatty fish a week, it's going to average out to 500 per day. Where what's interesting is there's a biomarker, a validated biomarker called the omega-3 index, and that is an indication of your omega-3 status. It's measured by looking at your red blood cells and they figure out how much omega-3s are in the membrane. And really the overall health benefits kick in when you're an eight or higher. So I don't know about the US, I'm sure it's similar in Canada, the omega-3 index on average is four and a half to five. So you can get it tested. There's lots of tests and anyone can do It's a finger prick. Or you can just take an amount that studies have shown will get 98% of the population to a minimum of eight. And for the average person, that's going to be 1,800 to 2,000 milligrams. So unless you're eating a can of salmon a day, supplements can certainly fill the gap on the days maybe you're not eating fish. And I think even important for people to know too, most supplements aren't even providing that much, right? You would have to be likely doubling up. Like even if you're doing like, I'm just thinking of different omega-3 supplements, right? You're doing a whatever, super omega-3 where they do have fairly high doses. I think they're even a little light on that recommendation right there. Are they not? What you want to do is look at flip the bottle around and look at the milligrams of EPA and DHA, not yep. the number of fish oil milligrams on the front. So most, a lot of products rather, not most, will have 300 per dose. That could be a capsule. Some will be six, some will be nine, some will be 1100. Yep. Uh, you can get some liquids and a teaspoon can have two and a half to three. So liquid's really effective. So it's just a matter of just knowing how much you're getting. Higher concentration just means a smaller dose, less pills. Yeah, perfect. All right. I think that's a big one because like you said, a lot of them are maybe only in the hundreds or whatever, three, 600, 900 milligrams or whatever, where if we're trying to get our two grams, two to three grams a day, then we've got to make sure we're doubling up on that stuff. But yeah, no, I think that's an important one for sure that people need to understand. And obviously if it's going to be that impactful on the inflammatory process, then it's something we want to definitely want to dial in on. I'll probably go take my omega-3s when this is done. It's a nice reminder for me as well, but... <laughs> <laughs> Good. So I know you've been playing around with a lot of this stuff. I think you've been using right. yourself as the uh, an N of one for a lot of these different things. I've been interested with a lot of the different supplements and products and stuff that you've been dabbling in. So I'd just like for you to share kind of a little bit of the process of what the different things that you've been doing to affect your longevity and some of the tests that you've been running on yourself and just your experience with it all. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a yeah, I've played with a lot. So more recently, with respect to longevity, I take creatine for all cellular health. So not just muscles, but all cells use creatine. So it's good for brain health. I take omega-3s. And specifically around this whole cellular energy output, I do take a specialized coenzyme Q10 product. And the first step in that three-step energy production glycolysis, to bring back a word that might trigger you, the two most important nutrients is magnesium and arguably B1 or thiamine. 
So to make sure that I've got all of the Bs on board for energy metabolism, I do take a B complex. I make sure I get enough magnesium. And then for the NAD, I've been playing around with that. I do take four products. So I take the quercetin and the apigenin, which is to squash the CD38, because that's a real NAD hog. And then to boost, to up my B3 intake, I do take nicotinic acid, but in small doses at each meal, so I don't get the flushing. And then I do take a powdered NMN, which is a B3 derivative sublingually under my tongue. And it's not anecdotal. I absolutely have felt the difference. And I only measure that because I go to a spinning class a lot. And I know how what I used to always, I don't count the calories, but I just know what my power output is. And it's basically, I don't know what the percentage increase is, but I used to burn like 425 to 450. So now I'm always like 485, 600. So I did notice a difference for sure. And it's supported by the research. So it's not just an anecdotal report. Yeah. And that's the thing that amazes me about you is the research. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where you find time for all the research, but I, I don't I... have a life. This is this is all <laughs> I do. So hey, it's a good way to be. I don't man. have ducks to play with or mountains to climb. Yeah. I wish ducks... I did. <laughs> <laughs> the ducks are more work than you'd think. I think I there don't. was one sitting in the yard before we started this, but yeah, no, no, I appreciate that though, right? I appreciate the fact that what you're doing is you aren't just throwing rocks, if you will, right? Like you're doing the research, you're doing the due diligence, and you're finding real products that are actually going to make a massive impact. So I think, obviously, for anybody listening to this today, you know, I think that's the important thing to understand here, right? Is this is not a couple of products that are paying you to whatever, come on and talk about how good they are, like you're going specifically based off of research. And then obviously, it's always great to put that research to the test with yourself. And if you're feeling that much better, and you're noticing an increase in like power output and stuff like that, when you're doing your exercise, then I think that's huge. And how about like recovery? Have you noticed anything in terms of like recovery aspect from activity when you're doing this? Uh, I don't think I really go hard enough to notice. Like I just, just, (laughs) I do spinning twice a week and then alternate it with three times a week and I do some weights, but I haven't really noticed any benefit. But again, I'm not going like you. I've seen those videos. I think in those cases where you really do need that good quality rest time, you might know if it's making a difference if it's instead of three days two and a half or two days that type of thing and like you said if you've got a science-based approach here that you're taking to reduce or shortening or reducing the inflammation process or in boosting the production of glutathione which is going to be super impactful in that then i think whether you're doing moderate exercise or super intense exercise it's going to be impactful right And even the fact that you're able to do that and walk away and say, wow, I'm not really working that hard. I think that's one of those things where even that's important too, right? Because I think there's a lot of people where potentially, you know, a spin class could put you back on the couch for a few days afterward if you're not recovering properly. And if you are dealing with excessive inflammation due to lifestyle factors, right? So I think that's another thing that a lot of people struggle with in this, in this, search of that wellness focused lifestyle as they go do things like these classes that let's be honest, like I've taken, I'm not a spin class, a monster by any means, but I've taken my share of classes and they're not simple. They're not easy. They're high intensity. So you're putting yourself through it, but the ability to repeat it is what I think people struggle with. And that is due to a lack of of recoverability in a lot of cases. So I think this would be 
something that could be beneficial to probably anybody, right? No matter if you're day one or even doing this for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. And it probably, the fact that it's a non-issue has just made me think it's not beneficial. I haven't just don't give it a second thought. So that's a good point. Creating a new normal. Awesome, Doug. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you with us today. Where can everybody look for you? Where can everybody find you? I have a website, dougcookrd.com, and there's links to social. I'm really only mostly active on Instagram, and the profile is your.nutrition.education. Amazing. And you've got some really cool stuff going on this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Things are looking good. So finally, (laughs) my dues have been paid. Hey, that's it. We all got to pay them. No, I'm excited to kind of see some stuff popping up online and for anybody who is listening to this, look dug up because all of your posts, all everything that you put online is really helpful. Like it, it is really obviously science-based and, it, and if you do the things and read the posts and things like that, they can be super beneficial for anybody who's just trying to get into a little bit more of a wellness focus. And I appreciate you coming on here to talk longevity and anti-aging. I appreciate you being with us today to share your knowledge. Yeah, it was great. It was my pleasure and uh, yeah, easy conversation. <laughs> yeah, good deal. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Please note that this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information shared on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be used as a replacement for the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider. Additionally, the opinions and strategies discussed on this podcast are those of the guests and host and do not necessarily represent the views or endorsement of the podcast or its creators. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.